Hey, welcome to this episode of Knowing Faith. My name is Kyle Worley. I get the privilege of serving as a co-host here with JT English. Hi. Golly, man, what a flop. And looking. Hey, how's everybody? There's more energy there. And I always do Jen first. I wasn't ready. We well, gotta be on your feet at all times, man. On your toes. Um, I'm ready. On today's episode, we're gonna we're gonna finish our long journey through the Book of Acts. We have been in the Book of Acts for since September uh, of 2019, uh, when COVID-19 was a long, long ways away, totally unfathomable. Um, and yet now we're finishing the Book of Acts, um, and we're glad that you've joined us. If you are hopping on to the live recording of Knowing Faith that's happening right now, we're glad that you're here. We hope you enjoy watching. Um, if you've got questions, you can throw them into the YouTube chat feature. Um, again, a feature I've never used before, but evidently it exists. Um, and uh, Ryan, producer Ryan, who's here with us, you might even be able to see her little nameplate there. Producer Ryan will be watching to see if there are any questions there, and then she sends them our way. So we've got questions that some of you have submitted through Twitter and Instagram. So the kind of what we'll do is we'll do a wrap up on the Book of Acts, and then we will j- jump into doing some Q&A. We will not be able to answer every question. You might need to refresh is what producer Ryan is saying for chat for questions. So you may need to refresh your page in order to be able to see the chat feature. You can submit questions there. Some of you submitted questions. Today, we're gonna do some Q&A after we deal with apps. And then next week, we're gonna do another recording on Tuesday night, same time, same place. I don't, again, I don't know how the links work. So we will tell you where you can Same place as YouTube. Yeah, same place as YouTube, yes. Um, So same time, same social media conduit channel, website, whatever. Um, And uh, you can submit questions and we'll do a whole Q&A episode next week. Um, So, but let's jump in to today. We, the last time we were with the Apostle Paul, we found him on the island of Malta and he gets shipwrecked on Malta. And uh, we start in on chapter 28 and we find that not only is he on this island shipwrecked, he is immediately bit by a viper. (laughs) This is my worst case scenario. Yeah, you guys, if you don't know, JT is deathly afraid of snakes. Total snake baby. Yeah. Like, <clears throat> others of the apostles were crucified upside down. And if you were giving me, like, an A-B choice, I'd probably still pick the viper. But, like, I'd think about it for a second. <laughs> it would be, I'd have to pray about it. Wow, that is a bold claim <laughs> the gate for this episode. So I like where we're headed. Uh, yeah, JT is deathly afraid of snakes. You should mail snakes and fake snakes to JT's house, his new place, his new church in Colorado. Um, just Storyline Church. Actually, I shouldn't be telling people to mail snakes to Storyline. They're going to be like, hey, tell your friend to quit telling people to mail these snakes to our church. There's also probably some legal issue with shipping snakes across state lines. There's yeah. not. I've tried. <laughs> um, so okay he ends up on Malta and Jen did a beautiful little picture last time do you still have the picture that you did for us last time Jen Are you talking about the map the map I do but it's currently putting my uh, my computer is propped on it so it'll be at the right angle do you want me to push it out? no I- don't do it don't do it no, you look great tell us where Malta is in relation to where Paul was wanting to go uh, I'm trying to think if it's going to be backwards on the screen but like basically he comes from um, the, the coast where, you know, uh, Jerusalem would be entire inside in, and they come around um, uh, behind the, the islands that are uh, right there. So you've got Crete and you've got, I need my map out. Now I'm going to blow it. Um, and, and they end up sailing like 
in tossed around in a storm. They can't see the stars to navigate. And they just basically turn the ship over to the wind and the wind. <coughs> they end up exactly where they were supposed to. They end up on Malta, which is headed right on the course to get him up to Rome. So, and, and he's, he is not worried. I think we talked about this in the last episode um, that is very similar to sort of Noah in the Ark kind of thing where he knows they're going to get there. Uh, although it is interesting that the, his Ark uh, breaks into pieces and they end up either swimming or floating to shore where he is promptly bitten by. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very Titanic like situation, not enough room on all the pieces for everybody, but they get to the shore. Made it Kyle. It's not like Titanic because they live. True. Um, and <laughs> they get there and it says, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat fastened on his hand. And it's like he, it's like you get almost a real time picture of this because it says when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand. So it's like, I just imagine he gets bent and he lifts his hand up and there's this snake just hanging from his hand. And everybody's like, whoa, man. And he's like, nah, like I'm unfazed by it. Um, and it says, no doubt, they immediately, I don't know who these people are, but it says, no doubt this man is a murderer. I mean, you know, like, they, it's, I mean, it's not like this dude has done something wrong. It's like they go to murder. <laughs> I don't know if it was a custom, but they thought, hey, if you get bit by a snake, you're for sure a murderer. But I just love the, this, I love this whole story because it's one of those parts of the Bible where you're like, if this story is not real, why are they writing it in here? You know what I'm saying? Like, Paul gets bit by a viper. It's hanging from his hand. They say he's a murderer, but it looks like, hey, they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no more misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and they said that he was a god. Wait, wait, you skipped one of the best parts. It says they think that he, so we're in chapter 28 for those of you who wondered what part of the book of Acts we were in. We are in chapter 28. Uh, and it says that they think he's a murderer. Uh, and then in verse five, it says, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. So he's just like, God, he just like throws this snake into the fire. And he's like, eh, just kind of moves on. Uh, <laughs> JT, yeah. JT would be paralyzed for life. He'd be yeah. done. I would be paralyzed at the sight of a snake in the wood I'm carrying, <laughs> let alone it grabbing onto my hand. Let's put it this way. If JT had been washed ashore and the whole, the whole uh, ability of the gospel to go forward had been riding on him getting past this scene, you guys, would, no one would be a Christian right now. It'd be I'm out. <laughs> I probably would have been able to like, I would have just pushed the ship forward though. We, we just would have, we wouldn't have never shipwrecked in the first place. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then they, they do, they assume that um, he's a God. And if you remember in Acts chapter 14, they had a similar thing happen where, yeah. where he and Barnabas were mistaken for God. And so um, one of the things that you, don't see here, and we're going to see this again when we start to see the miracles that happen, you don't see any, um, any record of him saying, hey, hang on, hang on, I'm not a god, you know, like you did in the previous story. And in fact, if you'll notice, like just as maybe um, Kyle and JT are getting fatigued with the book of Acts, it's almost as though Luke himself is ready to get to the end of the story. And he's now truncating the way that he is telling um, what had happened. So what we would assume is because this is a parallel story to the one that we saw earlier in Acts chapter 14, that Paul did probably say, no, 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 guys, I'm not a God. Don't worship me as a God. He would have responded the same way here as he had elsewhere. Um, but he, but it is not recorded for us. 
Yeah, that's really important to understand, particularly when we're thinking about history and that when these, uh, when we're reading historical narrative in the New Testament, we like any history, history that's written is it's history with a purpose. We're not meant to see everything in the book of Acts as entirely exhaustive, but in many ways, it's a highlight reel of apostolic activity in the early church. And I do think there's another thing that I want to make mention here. I know we've made light of this story, but it actually points to what is a very helpful and often neglected reality when we're reading our Bibles, which is the this is a pre-modern landscape, which means they thought nothing of there being a God in their presence. The idea of God's being around or of spiritual activity in the world. Like we read this and we're like, huh, foolish people, they thought that Paul was a God. But the idea of the spiritual realm being a active part of what was happening in the landscape was not that was normative for them so for them to have this this reaction wow this person he must be a god or divine or some sort of supernatural being or creature we we can read it now and be like wow they must have been really foolish but the reality is is that this is actually pulling us into the story and the dissonance we find is between our modern worldview where we're often inclined to think that none of that is a reality oh we got a we got a kiddo back here. What's Where? there? I see Bailey. I see you, Bailey. Okay. They just had to make one quick appearance on the Knowing Faith podcast. Thomas, come here. Hey, Bailey. What's up, Thomas? Bailey, can you say hi to Knowing Faith? Hello. <laughs> What's up? Thomas is out, man. He's deuces. Hey, Thomas. I see you, bro. Hey, Thomas. You got one chance. You want to come say hi? I'm over here. Oh. Look what Thomas brought up. You're a professional troll, Thomas, and I respect it, man. That's my son right there. One time. There's no time. There's no time, guys. He's got to go. Say goodbye to our friends. Say bye, friends. Bye, Bailey. See you later. Good night. Good night. Good night. Get out of your baby girl. Oh, my gosh. <sighs> Adorable. Sorry, but snakes. I do have a fake snake, and I bought that fake snake to scare Matt Chandler and Josh Patterson. It and I was successful. When? When? Um, but yeah, uh, before the cutest kids in the world showed up, uh, I was making some stupid point about <laughs> about the pre-modern worldview of this ancient culture. But I think the other thing that's important is like, this is one of the reasons it's really important to read an entire book. Uh, because if you just read this little episode where they assume that he's a God and then there's sort of like this, no, no statement of Paul circling back and correcting that assumption. Um, you might think that Paul is as big a jerk as a lot of people like to make him out to be. Yeah. Uh, but if you know that this is a repeat scene from earlier in the book, then you have the context that you need to understand what's going on in this shorter version of the story. So there's a lot to be said for understanding like how a story builds and how um, repetition functions in a historical narrative. And that's what we're seeing here. And then we'll see it again with the miracles. We're going to see that he performs these miracles on, on the island and um, but what we don't see is that he shares the the gospel. That he, we don't we don't see that part. So you're left to wonder if you're only reading this portion of the text. Oh, did he just do miracles? But he never told him the source of his power. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would understand that because of all the other scenes in which he has done the same thing and then shared the 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 hope of the gospel, that that is also what is happening here.
Yeah. Let's talk about those miracles for a second. JT, you're, you're about to say something. Well, there was one thing I was going to say. I read, a, I read I. Howard Marshall's commentary to prepare for this one. And one of the things he, he talks about specifically, like, in the juxtaposition of this guy's a murderer to this guy's a god. And he talks about how Luke might actually be pointing fun at the superstition of, of other world religions. Really? That they were looking for the spiritual everywhere, which meant they actually saw it nowhere. Hmm. Like they, they missed the gospel because there's no accounts of right. them believing the gospel at Malta. Yeah. Even in the healing accounts afterwards as Paul heals. And, and Marshall highlights the fact that, yes, we're living in a spiritual world, but some people are looking for spirituality and spiritual things everywhere, and they miss the actual gospel itself. Hmm. That's interesting. But, I mean, there are people, that would be true of the people who heard, uh, heard Paul and Barnabas uh, push back on it in Acts 14. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, it, it is a, this is one of those stories where it, you can almost feel the, you can feel the culture gap in a very significant way. Yeah, for sure. Like, you're like, wow, this is a very different landscape. But do you, but I think my question is, and I don't think we know the answer, like the culture gap is there, but I wonder if Luke felt the culture gap was there too. Hmm. Like, yeah. I mean, I do know that we, you know, that, um, the, that history, that the, whatever history we have after this would say that the church at Malta is established. Um, we don't know if this is exactly when, but that they attribute the establishment of the church at Malta to, uh, to uh, Publius. Who is, hmm. Now, that's, that is, that's outside of scripture. That's just kind of the tradition that's around it. But, and Publius um, is the next guy that we encounter here. Yeah. He, because um, he's sick. And uh, Paul heals him, pray, mm-hmm. visited him, prays, puts his hands on him, heals him. And so when this had taken place, what? Heals his father. Heals his father, yes. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Uh, they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sell, they put us on board, whatever we needed. And so Paul has a bit of a healing ministry here on the island. It sounds, the way it's written, it makes it sound like everybody who's sick on this island gets healed. The rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Okay, so let's pause here. We're in a time of disease, like right now. We're not on Malta, but we are in a time of disease. I think a very reasonable question for somebody reading Acts 28 today is, does God still heal like this? Does God still heal like this? Does he still heal diseases? Does he still heal the sick? If so, are there people that have particular power to heal like the Apostle Paul did? I think that's a reasonable question to ask when you're reading a passage like this in these days. Well, I think you've asked it about 500 other times while we were in the book of Acts. Well, I know, but is it, has it ever been more relevant than right now? I don't know. I mean, people are sick all the time. I mean, we're in a, we're in a time where um, being sick is top of mind. But, you know, one of the things that's been interesting, and I don't say that in a detached way at all, but um, in a hard way, has been people who were sick before this and people who will be sick after this, you know, people who are dealing with ongoing illnesses who um, now feel like everybody else has entered into their their sense of loss, you know, that, that everybody else is now kind of catching up to where they've been in terms of grieving and in terms of um, awareness. So, yeah, I don't know that I had a good point there other than that, I, that um, 
obviously people are talking more about illness right now. Um, so I guess you're allowed to ask your question for the 500th time. Well, I feel like it's an important question to ask. And I think particularly here when Paul, it appears, heals every single person on this island who's sick. I mean, you kind of wonder like, man, like, is this something that stopped when Paul stopped? Yes. I mean, that's a very viable, like, the what you see expressed here, one way of approaching this is that God stopped healing people this way when the apostles were done. Now, very few people in the scope of the Orthodox Church or evangelicalism would say that God is no longer healing people. Most Christians affirm that God still heals. And I would certainly say that, and I know that you too would as well. God heals people. He does. He does sometimes by through doctor, sometimes by divine decree. God heals people. Medicine, doctors, just eliminating things by divine decree. God heals people. I think maybe a question that we I think we've danced around before is does God use people to heal people? He's used the apostle Paul. Oh we have another guest. Are we getting another drop in? Coming in at just the right moment. Please tell me. Adorable small child. Hey! Hey! Hello, what's up? What's you guys up? Are all doing? together, and I wish I was a part of the Wilkin family right now. <laughs> just pick some strawberries out of our front yard. Oh man, that's so little house on the prairie. I can't <laughs> you even. You guys just picked strawberries from your front yard. You have strawberries in your front yard? A little teeny one. Oh. I just had a frozen burrito. Okay, all right. <laughs> same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. Same thing. Now, are you are are you doing most of the baking right now? Because I've seen a lot of pictures. Yes, I have been doing. But we can't find flour. And so I keep telling her, you better choose your recipes well, because um, when the flour's out, we're done. Most of them are heavily butter-based with a hint of flour. Okay. What's been the best one so far? The one you'd be like, this is the one you need to try this, Kyle. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Mexican wedding cookies. Yeah. I don't do nuts in them. I don't do nuts in any of my desserts, nuts just as a principle. Yeah, I agree. Um, but they're really good. That's awesome. I posted that recipe on my story a couple nights ago and people butter shamed me. And I just <laughs> want to be clear that some of you hoarded toilet paper, but I hoarded butter. And so we're yeah. working with what well, we I got. love you, Jen Wilkin. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Mexican wedding cookies. Yeah. Yeah. We'll take your vote. Yeah. Can, you, can you just mail some to me and JT? Would that be? I would. Honestly, they'd probably keep fine. Yeah, because they've got a lot of butter in them. Perfect. <laughs> Great. We will be, we will message you our address and Venmo you. JT will Venmo you the payment for both of ours. Cal's <laughs> a church planner. He's, he's, he's figuring out the finances still. I am for sure. I'll let JT cover mine. All right. Thanks, Good, to see you see you. Good to see you. Okay. Does God still heal people? Yes. Yes. Does God still use people to heal people? I think Yes. But it's important to put a caveat to that. And I'm not trying to put a caveat because I'm lacking in faith. I'm putting a caveat because I wonder where all the faith healers are right now in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic. And I don't mean that. It's not like shots fired. That's not. I just mean like there is an easy believism where we want to believe that God is maybe doing something that he's not doing. And we actually then can miss what God is actually doing in certain seasons. Yeah. And that does not minimize that I think God heals people and that I think God uses people to heal people. I won't tell the story now. I think I've told it on Knowing Faith before. Macy and I have a story of people praying for us. And I don't know if she was misdiagnosed, but like God healed her from something that is real. And when you're in the middle of sickness and darkness and at your last 
kind of last leg, you're, you're asking God, God, please heal what, whatever it takes. Like you're just in the, in the dark night of the soul asking God to heal. And I think God meets his people in those dark and broken places. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, and that doesn't, uh, actually, let me say this first. There's also a lot of charlatans yeah. who claim the gift of healing and they're all being really quiet right now. And we should say that out loud yeah. because what they're doing is they're profiting off of our un- misunderstanding or they're profiting off ignorance, they're pro- whatever they're profiting off. And we need to call that out now and be reminded that we're living in a dark and broken world and there is no such thing as a name it and claim it gospel. And I think that's actually what Luke is doing here in Acts chapter 28. Mm-hmm. If you have Paul experiencing a miracle himself, you have hundreds or whoever, however many people getting healed and nobody believes. We're going to get to the end of Acts here in a minute. I don't want to put the car before the horse. And what you see Paul doing is still preaching the gospel to Gentiles. And the mission of Acts 1-8 is still going forward. And now it's going forward in Rome. That Luke doesn't seem to be as interested in the question of healing or faith healing as we tend to be. That's Luke tends to be interested in the question of, is the gospel going forward? Is Jesus being believed? And is the word of God being multiplied? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to yell at Kyle, who's asked this question multiple times. <laughs> no. I mean, I think that that's a very good point. I think one of the clearest ways to, to distinguish between a charlatan and someone who is actually pursuing um, the work of the Lord in a broken world is what is the thrust of their ministry? Is it, let me show you some spiritual fireworks, or is it the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord over everything, including your sick body, and we're going to pray that he will heal you right now? Yep. And I think that is, that's the distinction. And we've already seen that in Acts, when people want to, we've seen these instances where uh, uh, there are people who wanted to co-opt spiritual power especially for their own ends and purposes. But there's people around the world right now saying, we don't, need, we don't even need a vaccine. We just need to ask the Lord to heal. We don't even need a, you know, antiviral. We just need faith healers. But what's funny is most of the faith healers that I'm familiar with are dead silent right now. But I also would just point out that no one is sitting around asking, does God still part the Red Sea anymore? Like, what, can, Mo, can, can someone have, do what Moses did and part the Red Sea? Because when we read the book of Exodus, we understand that the main point of the book of Exodus is not to ask and answer that question. It's, it's, at, it's using that story to ask and answer bigger questions. And so I think we have to take the same approach or a similar approach with the book of Acts. The book of Acts is not primarily concerned with asking and answering questions about how God is healing today. It is primarily concerned with talking about fruitfulness and multiplication under the new covenant. Yeah, it's good. It's good. So we, we, uh, Paul is able to get off the island at the hospitality and the honor of the people of Malta after healing many. And he heads to Rome and he finally arrives there. And it seems like once he gets there, um, he has some level of freedom. Like he's able, he's got some mobility in his imprisonment in Rome because he's able to preach the gospel. Uh, he's able to have people come visit him. And it says he was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. So he's like, I think at this point, it's almost like, well, listen, we understand Paul is a good faith. He's a good faith actor. Like he's not, he, this isn't some big conspiracy. He's not trying to break out of confinement, but Paul is able to have people visit him. And he begins to do what he's been doing all throughout the book of Acts, speaking to local Jewish religious leaders, 
pleading his case again. He's testifying. He begins a reverse prison ministry of sorts, doesn't he? They come to him in prison, and he preaches them. We, think, we typically think about going to prison to preach, but Paul's like, no, 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 you come to me. Oh, I'm chained to you? No, you're chained to me, buddy. <laughs> um, and uh, he, he shares the gospel. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's testifying. He's reasoning. He's, he's made his appeal, and he begins what is really a long wait uh, of kind of seeing how this is all going to play out in Rome. Yep. Well, and um, actually this to me was where I was like, oh, the Lord's timing is so perfect because, guys, we finished the book of Acts when Paul is under house arrest. <laughs> Come on. That's too perfect. Because if is you're perfect sitting, the right word. Huh? Is perfect the right word? <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's nuts. Uh, but it's bananas to borrow your, your word. Bananas. Um, uh, and so, you know, I don't know if you're feeling like, I mean, ah, it is what it is. I'm going to watch Netflix the whole time. But just in case you were wondering, when Paul was under house arrest, he just went ahead and evangelized the whole palace guard uh, and everyone else, according to Philippians. Apparently, he evangelized Caesar's household. And he also wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So now he did have two years. So it just, you know, if you're feeling like maybe just watch Netflix, he's here to show per usual, shaking his hand into the fire. And one of the things that's interesting is like Luke does not talk about the things that you think he's going to talk about. Yeah. Like in terms of the narrative moving forward, you think, well, I really would love for Luke to talk about Paul's appeal to Caesar because yeah. Paul's been appealing to Caesar for the last five chapters. And yeah, it feels like that's going to be the crescendo. It's like Paul in front of Caesar giving testimony to Jesus. Wouldn't yeah. it be great to have that? And now some people say, well, maybe it was written before this happened, but most scholars don't agree with that. It's just that he's actually not interested in talking about it. Uh, he also doesn't talk about um, Paul's relationship to the church in Rome. We have to look elsewhere for that. Like Luke, is, he doesn't talk about it at all. He just talks about his relationship with the Jews and then proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles, which is not what you're expecting. You're expecting a totally different ending based upon the last four or five chapters. But it is interesting because Acts, Paul's ministry in Acts opens up very similarly to, uh, or closes out very similar, similarly to how it opens up. At verse 25, disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. What was that statement? The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart. Turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul, like, like what, what, what do we find at the very last interaction of Paul? Ju the Jewish leaders confounded, confused, and walking away, essentially rejected or rejecting what Paul is saying, which is what? I have been sent to bring the good news to the Gentiles because you are too deaf to hear. Like, it's very similar to the opening kind of conversations of all these intramural conversations between the Jewish church and the, the spreading and growing Gentile community. That's right. Well, and this has been the predominant theme throughout the book of Acts is just this ratcheting open up. Oh, wait, who is the gospel for? 
Oh, it's for the Samaritan. Wait, who is the gospel for? Oh, it's for this household of Gentiles. Wait, who is the gospel for? Oh, it's for, you know, and on and on and on. And so this is actually the most logical place for him to end. Although to us, we're like, wait, tell us the rest of the story. But in the minds of his original audience, it would have been like, oh, wow, the, the gospel is at the ends of the earth as far as, as far as they would have known it. And and that, oh, it really is for the Gentile. It isn't just for the Jew. And, um, and so the fruitfulness, the be fruitful and multiply command, which gets carried forward to Abraham and, and is, you know, hey, through, all you, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, um, is what we see fulfilled in, in the book of Acts. And that's its main concern, is yeah. that you can understand that the promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Christ and the message is carried forward. It is significant that the last adjective that we hear speaking of Paul is that he is speaking with all boldness. It also says without hindrance. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that with boldness has been a theme throughout the book of Acts as well. And so I think if you're looking for what are the, what are the prescriptive elements of the book of Acts, it, it would be um, to, to take the gospel forward with all boldness to the ends of the earth. Yeah, and I think that's a timely word for this moment right now. I was like, if you've just gotten done reading the last 28 chapters in Acts, you would not have said since Paul's conversion that his ministry has gone forward without hindrance, nor being in prison, your proclamation of the gospel being without hindrance. But Luke is trying to make a really important literary and theological point here, that whenever people try to bind the word of God, it is unbound. Like it just, that is when it most, most goes forward. And it's when it's, it's most powerful. And that is what is Luke's point here at the end of Acts, is all of the stories that have come before, every single one of them, is the without hindrance, I think you could say is a thesis statement or a summary of what the whole books of, book of Acts has been about. Is it in, or you could say it's a parable of Jesus's mustard seed. Like it starts in this proto form of Jesus ascending to the heavens and giving the gospel to a few people. And here it is in Rome going forward to Caesar's household and, and Malta. I mean, like, literally to the ends of the earth without hindrance. You know what else I think is going on here, probably from a, from a biblical theology standpoint, like from a canonical reading of this book, this sounds a whole lot like when, um, when Jacob's family goes into Egypt. Um, and then what happens? You get to the beginning of Exodus, Exodus 1, 7, and it says the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So the land was full of them. So basically that when, when the people of God are pressed down, when they find themselves in bondage is exactly the time when the word begins to multiply and flourish. And that multiplication language is all through the book of Acts. There are six places in the book of Acts where we see that, that imagery um, communicated um, explicitly referring back to this idea. So I wonder if we don't find Paul at the end of the book of Acts, almost like the family of Jacob. He's in, uh, he's in his own Egypt in some sense, and he's going to have, because of his imprisonment, great opportunity to be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, that's really good. I, the, the, both of you have, have effectively essentially summarized this journey in Acts. The, the, the one thing I do want to point out in verse 31 that I feel like is, a, is subtle is Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God. There's an important reason to make sure that we mention this, which is that 
not in the New Testament, but in reflection on the New Testament, you will often hear people draw this division between Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God and Paul was not as concerned with teaching, proclaiming, and preaching on the kingdom of God. He focused more on the salvation of sins. Sometimes you'll hear this kind of juxtaposes kind of two different angles on the gospel. But here at the end of Acts, Luke, who, Luke, who uh, uh, is, is able with good, uh, with good precedent to understand what kingdom of God proclamation sounds like. Luke is saying, listen, Paul was teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is in some ways, I think the almost the best way for Luke to be ending his summation of Paul's ministry, because he's making it, he's tying it in directly with the beginning of Acts, where we hear that what is Jesus doing in his last days on earth? Proclaiming the kingdom of God, right? So like, Acts opens up with Jesus, the Son of God, prior to his ascension, spending time with his followers, proclaiming the kingdom, and it ends with Paul in Rome imprisoned among the Gentiles, proclaiming the kingdom of God. So Acts bookends with kingdom of God proclamation, tying the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of Paul. Don't ever let anybody try to, there will be, if you look and you read the literature, or if you listen closely, you will hear people that will want to say, Paul and Jesus are talking about two different things. They are not. And, and Luke is trying to, at pains, to point out to you, they're talking about the same thing over and over and over again. That's a good call. Um, all right. What happened to Paul? We're left with a cliffhanger here. What happens? I don't think Luke's interested in us knowing. You know, scholars give us a few different, and, and history gives us some opinions. But again, Luke, that's a question Luke is not interested in answering at this point. He's far more interested in helping us understand that the word of God is going forward without hindrance. Uh, some people would say he even made it all the way to Spain. Other people would say that he ended up uh, beheaded uh, several years after this. There's really lots of opinions. But again, like, I, and I feel like I've said this three or four times now, I don't mean to belabor the point. Luke doesn't care. And that's overstating it. He cares. Like this is his, this is his traveling companion. And this is, this is somebody that he loves undoubtedly. But he's trying to show that question is secondary to the question of the gospel, that Paul preaching the gospel to the Jews and Gentiles was his whole point. That, that's why I've written this book. And the truth is, is we, we do not know what happened to Paul. We have some pretty good guesses. What are your guesses? Well, I think he was martyred. I, I don't know if he um, was released or not, but some of the things that I read were actually... I, so I'll tell you, I thought just growing up in the church at the end of the book of Acts, he's martyred. Like I just assumed that was what happened next. So I was surprised to find that there was sort of more to the story. Um, but the, the, the version that made the most sense to me in terms of what probably happened next was that because there was just really no merit to the case that had been brought against him, that in all likelihood, his accusers never showed up in Rome to plead their version of the case and that he was eventually just released. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's people's opinion. Like, like those are two of the major opinions. But I also wonder if one of the reasons Luke leaves it out is because he, he thinks you're going to assume he's beheaded and he knows that's not supposed to be the end of the story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we actually, we actually don't get, we do not get a bunch of martyrdom accounts in the New Testament. Well, you do in Acts. I mean, you get, you get Stephen and James you get Stephen and James, but you don't get like Paul, you don't get Peter, you don't get, you get John on Patmos, right? So like, but any of the big ones, when you think of like the luminaries of apostolic writing in the New Testament, we don't get their accounts. Yeah. 
Yeah. That being said, I do think I, I I'm kind of in the place of tradition here in terms of 80s, 60s. Uh, Paul is beheaded somewhere under Nero's reign in Rome. So that's my that's my take. Um, you know, scholars will point to Clement's letter, Clement one, or Eusebius, who both seem to make mention of Paul dying in Rome. Some think that Paul eventually went to Spain. Um, he journeyed further west and maybe came back to Rome and was martyred subsequently. Um, but um, I do think that sometime in the 60s, 80s, 60s, Paul, Paul was martyred in Rome. Um, and uh, yeah, this is, Acts is a crazy, like it is a really fascinating book. I this have- This has been so much more fun than First and Second Samuel. By a, by a long shot. Really? <laughs> You're a terrible human, JT English. Everyone <laughs> in the world just heard you say that, and they are coming for you. That's fine. I'm here. Tell, um, give my address <laughs> <laughs> for for a moment longer, right? <laughs> Perfect. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Um, well, hey, a lot of you submitted questions, um, and we're not going to be able to answer all your questions. But we will take the next, what do you guys think, next 25 minutes? I'm going to try to go till midnight. What do you guys think, listeners? You guys here till midnight? You guys want to rage? <laughs> I'm going to try to turn this around since my the sun went down and now I've got a shiny lamp behind me. That's perfect. That's great. I hope that the room is clean behind me when I turn this around. Well, it's just a window now looking outside. So, and a guitar, perfectly okay. poised. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> she, she had this planned. Yeah, this was an end scene, transition to scene two. We've got some questions. If you want to submit a question, you can do it through the YouTube chat feature. Um, and um, you, uh, you can submit it through the YouTube chat feature and Ryan will get them to us, but we do have some questions here. So we'll get to these um, and we'll just do as many of them as we can in the next 25 minutes or so. So this first one comes from Braxton. Uh, Braxton said it's his wife's birthday. His wife's name's Kaylee. Hey Kaylee, happy birthday. Thanks for listening to Knowing Faith. Um, all right, she said, it says she loves studying the book of Esther. How are we supposed to view deception as it plays out in redemptive history? Is this merely descriptive of human nature or is deception sometimes approved of? So looking at the story of Esther, but you could point to a lot of accounts here. I mean, you could go all over the Bible to find accounts of 
Uh, I think of obviously Rahab is one that comes to mind, um, which is a big yeah. one. The Hebrew midwives. Um, so actually, let's just let's just put it out there. What you often see when you see these um, deceptions is that it's women who are using deception. To- I wasn't going to say it, but I mean, you guys can't. So I'll just <laughs> say it for you. And honestly, that that has led to some um, some scholars characterizing women as deceivers right. because of that pattern in in the scripture. And so um, then we have to ask the question: Why do these women deceive? And um, as far as I can remember, of all of the women that I've looked at with this, without exception, the deception is practiced for the purpose of preserving life. So in other words, there is an ethical dilemma and there are two things at stake. So, so we, we want to look at it with a very wooden reading and say, that's a lie. She told a lie and we're not supposed to lie. The Bible says not to lie. Yeah. Um, but that is to take the, um, so R.C. Sproul would say, we owe the truth to whom the truth is due. So in other words, when faced with the decision of telling the truth and preserving life, obviously the greater concern is preserving life. And not only that, but we forget that in these stories of women in particular, that they lack agency, that they don't have a position of power and culture. And so, um, whereas for a, a male character in a story, he would have other weapons at his disposal for battling evil, that women had a relatively limited arsenal at their disposal. And one of the things that they could do was use deception for the purpose of that higher cause of preserving life. And I would also just point out that in all of these accounts where women deceive, um, there is no censure of their acts. In fact, they are actually um, spoken of with great honor after after the fact. Yeah, I think that is a crucial point for understanding this. Just to kind of pan out a little bit, ancient ethicists also had a category for this kind of thing. Like Plato talked about the noble lie. A noble lie is a lie that you tell uh, or a deception that you invoke in order for the benefit of some injustice not being able to be per- perpetrated. So, like, think about the confessing Lutheran church in Germany or just those in Germany who were hiding Jews, right? Somebody knocks on the door, are you hiding any Jews here? Is it more noble? Is it right to say, well, I can't lie, so, yes, I am hiding Jewish people here. It's like, no, that's obviously wrong. That's immoral. Um, This is also, too, a a place where you can see that the Christian worldview allows for a sophisticated ethical system that is far more nuanced. Like, for example, Kant, who is one of the other great ethical minds of history of civilization, Kant had this idea of the categorical imperative that you could never do that which you would not do in any circumstance at any time among any people. So, for example, lying you can't lie because you couldn't mandate that everybody could lie all the time in any place. That's a, that's a great picture of how Kant's ethical system is lackluster. It just fails because it doesn't have a sufficient engine to, to maintain these kinds of nuances that are circumstantial. So we had a little follow-up question I saw pop up in the chat. One of the, one of our viewers asked if Tamar would fall into this category of women who deceive for the purpose of preserving life. And I would say the answer is yes, that, um, we don't understand her story in its historical context. We don't understand that by, um, by having been refused the right to marry the, the next son, the whole idea, this is a big topic, but leveret marriage, we don't understand those concepts in such a way to understand that her situation is dire 
and that by lying and, and deceiving Judah, who is not a nice guy, by the way, um, she ends up actually preserving the righteous line. Yeah, that's a very good question. Thank you, Braxton. Happy birthday, Kaylee. Courtney on Instagram, she asked, why did Jesus say it is finished before he resurrected? This is a timely Eastertide question. So why did Jesus say it is finished before he resurrected? Just so you know, Courtney, Jen wanted this question so badly. She made, she said, Kyle, did you make sure you got that question in here? So I'm gonna let Jen take the first crack at it. Go for it, sister. Okay, so uh, the question is, what is finished? Like, what is finished when, when he breathes his last? And um, we have to understand the whole story of the Bible to understand that particular moment in the narrative. Um, if you are familiar with the creation account in Genesis 1 all the way to the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, um, we see it is finished language associated with the institution of the Sabbath on day 7. It says, and on that day, he finished all of his work. It's repeated there. Um, and that he set it apart as holy because he had finished all of his work. And so um, Jesus is crucified on a Friday right before sundown because what is about to happen? Sabbath. Sabbath is about to begin. And so when he says it is finished, we are to understand that the work of atonement is complete, um, that he has atoned for our sins. Uh, it's also significant. So basically you have the initial creation account, right? And the it is finished of day seven of creation means that the creation has been, has been finished. Um, when Jesus Christ says it is finished on the cross, um, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so we have the beginning of the new creation under the new covenant in our hearts. And then you skip forward all the way to Revelation chapter 21 and guess what it says after we see the new Jerusalem descending from above. He says, it is done. And so you have these three creation narratives. The work of the, the restoration of all things is completed in Revelation chapter 21. So all three of those, it is finished, go together and are telling us something important. Thanks uh, for asking a great question. It is a great question. Um, thank you, Courtney. Lots of people ask some version of this question, most influential books on you. So let's just like, could you just name three or four books that you feel like these books really influential on me? And let's say, well, let's say we're going to table the Bible, Calvin, Bavink, <laughs> because we, we, we mentioned these quite a bit. Uh, and so let's just say three. We're not saying the most influential, like you're writing this and seeing it. Just three influential books that have come to mind, come to mind for you. Okay, I'll go first. Um, <clears throat> Athanasius on the Incarnation. It's a fantastic book. Uh, I did a little. I got a lot, Jen made fun of me for this. I did a little uh, Advent reading guide, which I'll probably do again this year. But that was fun. Um, I think I would also say Augustine. I made fun of him because he was on sabbatical and he was the worst sabbatical taker ever. Delighting in God is what we are supposed to not do on sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Augustine on the Trinity and Peter Brown's biography of St. Augustine, which I've talked about on here before. It's called St. Aug uh, Augustine, a life. It's long, but it's, it's probably the best biography I've ever read. It's uh, it's more, it reads more like a narrative and you, you get the heart of the person, not just the biography of the person. Good. Jen, you got three books. Stay away from my typical ones. Cause you guys are staying away from your, your typical ones. Um, but the holiness of God by R.C. Sproul was really formative for me. Um, 
uh, Augustine's Confessions. Um, R.S. Pine Coffin was the translation that I um, used and I loved it. And then this one's a little um, off the beaten. Well, I, don't, I wouldn't say that, but G.K. Chesterton's <sighs> was really um, thought-provoking. That's awesome. I just dropped the book while you were talking about a book. My bad. Um, yeah, so a couple of books for me. Valley of Vision, the prayer book, was has been an incredibly influential book for me, just period, in terms of my devotional life with the Lord. Outside of that, um, I actually had this right next to me, so it's timely. Paul, an outline of his theology. This is by Herman Ritterboss, um, and uh, this was incredibly significant for me. This is still probably one of my most trafficked books. It looks like you haven't read it. I've, I've put it through its paces. Trust me. Um, uh, that one it was it been very significant. And then the other one, the other two that I might mention, Drama of Doctrine by Kevin Van Hooser was a great. It was a show and tell. You're cheating. Well, I, I just had these. I'm all like I went to my office to grab my essential books. I grabbed this book. I grabbed this one. I grabbed this is Drama of Doctrine. Very good book. Um, I grabbed this one. Paul and Union with Christ. I actually, this is a newer copy. I give this one away a lot. Uh-huh. But okay, so this is actually kind of funny because JT and I have had an ongoing argument about whether you should keep all of your books in your office or not. I am lost right now. Uh-huh. And so his books are all in quarantine and my books are all right where I need them. No, I've got like a duffel bag that I throw in my must-need books. And uh, My theory is I should be able to flee the scene rapidly if I need to, so I'm going to keep all the books. <laughs> Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Next question here. Nolan on Twitter asked, how many pugs should a person own? What's an acceptable amount of pugs? I'm going double zeros on this. Double zeros. At least two. <laughs> Why two? Does he mean in a lifetime? <laughs> oh, like at one time. I'm at four. I'm at four right now. Wow. You have four pugs right now? No, I have had a total of four pugs. <laughs> I'm going to keep going. I get, listen, you guys are making fun of me, but I get people Instagram me. That's not the way you say that. That's not the way the kids talk today. On Instagram and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm getting a pug puppy because of all your pictures. And I'm like, I'm like a pug evangelist. No, you're not. You're the pug princess of preachers. You're not going to be sorry. They're going to thank me after they get one. Mm, I don't like dogs. That's my dirty secret. So here's what's clear. You're obviously an evangelist for pugs. I'm an evangelist for West Wing. That's the best feedback I get on Twitter is when people tell me that they started watching the West Wing. And I've probably gotten 20, 30 uh, tweets since quarantine. of like, hey, we started the West Wing. Thank you. Kyle, what are you an evangelist for? Yeah. Don't say Jesus. Uh, (laughs) uh, No, uh, honestly, I'm an evangelist for defending you guys because you make fun of me so much. I think you're an evangelist for being a Baptist. Oh, that's it. That's happy that, or, or, or Calvin's Institute. More people will tell me, um, I uh, like I started Calvin's Institute. That's the number one feedback I get personally, and I love that. So that's that's great. tell us the truth. When you heard that the SBC was canceled, did you slip into a dark depression for two? <laughs> I mean, it is a, it's it's unprecedented. I mean, I was very interested. Were you um, were you more sad that the NBA season was delayed, or MLB, or SBC? Uh, probably SBC first, um, <laughs> then NBA, and the MLB. People want to see the pug. I know. I, I just told Claire she needs to bring me one. She said, which one? I'm like, I mean, I can't lose either one. But they all look the same. Oh, my goodness. Will, will, will one of them get jealous because of the screen time? Like, no, it's a pretty egalitarian relationship. They can't even see. 
Um, all right, while we're waiting for the pug to show up, I can't believe I'm saying that. Um, uh, let's go with, okay, what are good resources to give someone who doesn't believe the Bible is trustworthy? This is from Haley on YouTube. I'm a newer believer and was recently asked this question, unsure where to point them. First off, hey, Haley, welcome to the faith. Glad to have your sister. Uh, and glad to hear that you're already talking with other people about believing the Bible, trusting in Jesus. After we show off this pug, we will answer your question. I cannot believe <laughs> it's not even for posterity for me personally. So, is its um, tongue sticking out? Okay, that was a little. I do feel like maybe we need a little money back on this one because her tongue is three times as long as her body. But other than that, she's really, really cute. <laughs> she's a Winnie. That's a Winnie pup. <laughs> Look at that tongue. Oh my gosh, she looks like an alien. <laughs> Can you hear the sounds? It's <laughs> her like heaving. Live, <laughs> guys. Okay. Wow. Okay, that's my favorite part of our podcast so far. Yeah, I think so. It's going down in the record books. Um, Sorry, we totally interrupted a question that was important. Uh, could we start a podcast on this? Michael Kruger. Oh, Bible is trustworthy. Michael, we did a, we did do a podcast. If you want something that's not a book, we did a podcast with Michael Kruger. You can find it in the archives, tbcresources.net. And he's got a, I mean, that podcast is great about the Bible. He has a good, a fantastic book, which we all love, called Canon Revisited, also dealing with some of these questions as well. And isn't that the name of his blog too? His blog. You know, Canon Fodder. Fodder, it's the best. <laughs> yes. So Michael Kruger would be great. You can also just YouTube Michael Kruger Bible, and you'll find a bunch of stuff. Um, we're, we're a fan of the book. We're a fan of Michael, Dr. Kruger, and the podcast is really good on the topic. Um, okay, let's do, oh, there's another good question from YouTube. Uh, why do New Testament writers change words when they quote the Old Testament? Uh, for example, Ephesians 4, 8 changes the psalm from he received gifts to he gave gifts. So, but we, we could go a lot of different places here in terms of the question of the New Testament writers using, adapting, playing with the Old Testament. What do we make of that? I mean, there's a whole field of text criticism here, which I am intentionally not good at. Uh, I, I took a few classes in it and it was just, it just is not my, my thing. But uh, like a simple answer would be, I don't know the answer to that specific text to Ephesians, the question. So I can't speak to that. But often what's happening is authors are using different translations from what we have translations from. So they're using different versions of what's called the Septuagint, or they're translating from the Hebrew Bible, or they're translating from Akkadian, and they're translating to Koine. So it's often a translation issue from a previous version. And it wasn't like there was just, like what's different is like, we have the ESV, and tons of people have the ESV. There was, you know, hundreds of manuscripts out there, and the scribes just went to the, you know, greatest lengths possible to preserve the original manuscripts. But sometimes there would be a, a smudge or, you know, the guy had been writing for four hours and he gets a word wrong, but then we actually can go back and see what it actually said. Yeah. The, the, here's the key. That's actually, there's a question behind that question. The question behind the question again is, can I trust my Bible? And the answer is unequivocally, absolutely yes. I don't have the, the data in front of me, but you look at other uh, resources from antiquity and the kind of documentation, the early documentation, and the perfection of our documents far exceeds anything else. And by far exceeds, I mean it's embarrassing. Yeah. We don't ask the question, but did Socrates really say that? We just assume, well, yeah, Socrates said that, or Plato said that. Uh, <clears throat> but yet we question the Bible. And when you compare the documentation from those two resources 
it's it, it's not even the same universe. Yeah. So there is. The, oh, go ahead, Jen. I was just going to say, Kyle. I know there was a question out there about the NIV. Also, you want to roll that into this? Sure. Okay. Did you have something you want to say before we before we go to that? Yeah. So the the text criticism component is an important part of the conversation. I will say that just generally when we're looking at how the apostles are using the Old Testament, we have to keep in mind that we believe the apostles were inspired by the Holy Spirit, that their writings are writings that are divinely inspired. So it's not, um, um, think, keep in mind that these are spirit indwelt, spirit inspired uh, authors of scripture who are taking the Old Testament and by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, bringing it to its proper application and fulfillment. They're tying threads. For example, the Psalm passage in Ephesians 4, I only know this because I was looking at it a couple of months ago for our Ephesians Bible study. But the Christic fulfillment that's going on here is the writer, Paul, he's showing you that what was going to be received by the first or near-term fulfillment of the one who would receive gifts has now been properly fulfilled in this great future perfect, perfect Davidic king who is not merely receiving gifts, but is actually dispensing gifts to his people. And so that's an example of how Paul is taking something from the Psalms through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit and bringing it, doing a little bit of it, of improvising with the Old Testament fulfillment narratives here and applying it to what Christ has done. Um, and so Dan Wallace has a great, not, excuse me, not Dan Wallace. He has great articles on text criticism. Dan McCartney, Dr. Daniel McCartney has a great article on the apostolic use of the Old Testament that I think if you're interested in this conversation, but maybe not the text criticism side in terms of manuscripts and discrepancies, that is a really good introduction to how the apostles use the Old Testament. So NIV, Jen, you brought this up. So related to this, like people have um, concern about, oh, is my NIV Bible trustworthy? I heard someone say it wasn't a good translation. Um, first of all, I would just say I heard someone say is probably not the end of your conversation <laughs> around really anything theologically related. Um, if you're going to make a decision uh, one against the other, you're going to need to dig deeper than that. Um, but let me help you do that right now with the NIV. Um because this question has come up a lot, and I think it is related to an earlier version of the NIV that people had some questions around. But the most recent, um, the most recent translation of the NIV, the Study Bible editor was Don Carson. So I don't think you need to feel like what's happening in the NIV translation is 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 off the beaten path. Um, a lot of people have taken issue with it because uh, it, has, it has taken some of the gendered language and changed it to non-gendered language. So, for example, we've talked about this some, I think, on this podcast before, when the text says Adelphoi, the ESV is going to translate that brothers and typically put a footnote that says, or brothers and sisters. In the NIV, it's going to say brothers and sisters or followers of Christ. It'll use a term that is not gender specific. Um, so, um, but, but in terms of like material differences between translations where that one would be suspect, um, that does not appear to be a founded point. Yeah. And just about every time, like there are whole online communities devoted to telling you why various translations of the Bible have a super secret, top secret agenda behind them that's in league with the worst conspiratorial forces on the planet. Listen, I've met a bunch of people involved in Bible translation. Uh, they're not conspirators. <laughs> they're just 
they're Bible nerds. Like they study Hebrew and Greek, Hebrew and Greek with their life. And that's what they've given their lives to. So well, we live in unprecedented times, like more than finding your uh, brand loyalty with a translation, you should get a good serviceable translation, but you have access to lining that up against multiple translations and seeing how they compare. And you should do that. Yeah. So, um, so you don't need to be, um, you don't need to feel like, oh, I got to choose the best one and just stick with that one because you are able to go to the major, other major translations and compare. I don't know, Jen, I disagree. I think the best translation is the Greek. <laughs> Somebody needs a pug in his life. I probably do. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Um, okay, Brittany on Twitter, this was upvoted by many, so I think it would be unfair for us to not to not address it. Are what are your thoughts on virtual communion? So churches are, you know, everybody right now is not, I say everybody, almost everybody is not gathering for corporate worship. Um, and there are, is a question over the ordinances and their practice. If you're involved in some of the online Christian blogging, you've probably already seen different articles come up that are like, definitely not, never, no way, no how. And then like another one that's like, yeah, it's totally fine. Spirit over letter of the law. So like, let's just talk real openly about this. I don't think any of us have this binary, we're drawing a firm line in the sand on this question, but let's talk about it, what we're doing, what we're seeing, and kind of some of the either pain points or opportunities. Yeah, like, I'll, I'll jump in. And again, I think it's important to emphasize what you just said, Kyle, that we're figuring it out. You know, we're trying to be faithful. Nobody's trying to do something that's unfaithful. What we're doing at the village is uh, whoever's preaching offers the ordinances from, from at the end of the sermon. And at the beginning of the sermon encourages uh, whoever's listening, assuming, and again, we're offering this primarily to members of the village church to, uh, to beforehand buy and get uh, elements that we would use typically at church, whether that's a piece of bread or a cracker and grape juice. And at the end of the sermon, we're all partaking together. Are there things you could, tweak and critique with that yeah there there is but at the same time macy and i've done it the past two weeks or i'm sorry three weeks now time is a vortex by the way in quarantine we're like how have i been here for 20 years <laughs> or um but for the last three weeks and it's been special is it ideal no but it's also doing something for me that it's intended to do it's building in me the desire to gather with god's people again and do it the right way like and by the right way, I don't mean the right way. I mean, like, I'm looking forward every time that I do that, knowing and anticipating that I'm going to get to do it with my church family again. Yeah, yeah that's great. I'm about to make a terrible analogy. I mean, like, really terrible. Are you ready? Yeah. We're ready. We'll tell you. has told Catholics that they don't have to go to a priest to confess during quarantine. Like, he's like, you know what? You could just pray to God. And so we all had a little Protestant giggle about that. But um, my assumption would be that on the other side of this, he's going to reel that back in. And I think it's fair to look at this as a non-normative time. And we do the best that we can. And we honor the principle behind the conviction, understanding that, um, Lord willing, there will come a day where we are back to business as usual. Yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, Kyle, you need to share what you're doing because I love it. Um, well, so I'm not, what I'm about to share with you is what we're doing. It's, it was, it's, it's unique to who we are. It's also tied into some convictions we had, but this is not a, somebody asked another question here about open-handed and close-handed issues. This is very much the practice of this right now. 
open-handed issues. I just want to be really clear about that. Um, but we, uh, as a portion of our services in place of the time of receiving of the elements of the Lord's Supper, we've been doing a lament portion in our digital service, asking God to bring this time to an end so that we could gather at his table and looking forward in hope to the table of the Lord uh, at the wedding supper of the Lamb, which will never be interrupted. So we've been lamenting, but we haven't been leading people through a virtual way of taking communion, and we, we, won't, we won't do that. Um, and I, at the same time, I understand why um, people are doing that because it, isn't a very, it is a very significant aspect of the church's corporate life together, and particularly uh, the exaltation of Christ in word and in the Lord's Supper. So to that end, we're not doing this weekly, but we are doing it this weekend for Easter. But we will be, our elders will be going house to house for a three-hour block of time on Sunday, going to all of the member households at Mosaic, uh, dropping prepackaged, individually sealed communion elements um, uh, that uh, they're on their front porch, knocking on their door, running back uh, about 10 feet, and then praying with our people and leading them as we receive the elements together. Uh, and so that's what we're doing this week. Again, we're not doing that every week. We're doing it this week. Um, and in place of taking it every week, receiving it every week, we're reading a lament portion. We thought with Easter Sunday, this was a particularly significant time and we wanted to mark it in a significant way that, that showed our value on that. So that's what we're doing. Um, Are you wear, um, a three-piece suit? No, I will be wearing probably exactly what I'm wearing right now, which is these Somebody asked me, do you wear this same shirt every single day? I, I love this shirt, and I have 10 of them, uh, five of them in black and five of them in a dark blue, and I wear them every single day. So this is what I will be wearing on Sunday. It's very likely. So, um, Okay. <sighs> Lots of questions. Uh, Michael, favorite whole Bible or whole Old Testament commentary? Do you have hey, let's do this. Can we see if we can get through a ton, like, super fast? Let's see how fast we go. Let's do it. Okay. Favorite whole Bible or whole Old Testament commentary? Just go with one of them. Don't do it. Sorry, Jen, go. Don't do it. um, You should choose commentaries according to individual books of the Bible. That's great advice right there. It is good advice, but I'm going to go against it right now. Bruce Waltke's Old Testament theology is fantastic. That's if I own one single, if I like Desert Island, one Old Testament commentary or thing, it's Bruce Waltke's Old Testament theology. Um, JT, have you ever done any climbing or hiking in Colorado? Flat irons in Boulder or hiking up? I don't know what this means. It says 14 ERS afterwards. 14ers. I know what that is. I mean, it's 14,000 feet in the altitude, Kyle. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have. Uh, I've done a lot of climbing in Boulder. Uh, and Mount Beerstat, I think, is the one I've done most recently. I did that one with Macy when we were in college. I've not done it since. But I'm moving back to Colorado, pastoring a church called Storyline, right. right next to the mountains. So I've got some more of that in my future. We should uh, be knowing fate episode from a top of a 14er. Jen, we'll will you up. It'll be fine. Will it mountaintop experience or? <laughs> you wouldn't have to will Jen up. You'd have to will me up. She's going <laughs> to I'm confident, okay? But me, I'm not getting up there. That's true. That's actually fair. Okay. At Mama Surfing Llama. Did not read that ahead of time. At Mama Surfing Llama. Uh, that's funny. Um, Ask, did Jesus descend to hell for three days? My Easter lesson is saying so. Uh, I don't know that I would say three days, uh, but he descended to the dead on Holy Saturday. And there's a great book by Matt Emerson called He Descended to the Dead. And it's also in the Apostles' Creed. And we have a podcast about it. We did. And yes, so the short answer is Jesus descended to the utter depths of death. Yes. Yeah. 
and we wouldn't say three days because again, we're not, you know, it's not like three whole 24 hour periods. It's one, two, three, right? Friday to Sunday. Um, Solution Meals uh, ask book recommendations on Christology or Trinity. For Christology, I'm just going to say Steve Wellam's God, the Son Incarnate, Son of God Incarnate. That's a fantastic book on Christology. For Trinity or Christology, JT, what would you say? Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves. Yeah, that's, if you've already read, we've recommended it a lot. If, you, if they've already read Delighting in the Trinity. Why? There's a, a French Catholic uh, uh, priest. His name's Guy Omri, G-I-L-L-E-E-M-E-R-Y. And he has a book called The Trinity, and the Catholics are really good on Trinitarianism. Yeah, that's good. There's also, um, gosh, it's, uh, why am I blanking on this dude's name right now? The Reformed Dogmatic, Scott Swain. Scott Swain. After, he does Trinity and Reformed Dogmatics, right? Yep. Anyways, there's a collection of essays across some major doctrines, and it's good. The collection's called Reformed Dogmatics. It's very good. Um, at Chewbacca 25, is New Testament election the same or different than the chosen people of Israel in the Old Testament? Oh, that's a big one. Um, that's a whopper. Uh, well, it depends on what you mean. If you mean that the, the word used election in the New Testament, is that talking about the same group of people? Um, uh, yes and no. It's talking about the fulfillment of that people. Okay? So uh, the church is the fulfillment of God's elective work. But when we think about who was chosen in God before the foundation of the world, all all who have been chosen by God were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. This includes all of those who were believers in Yahweh, covenantly faithful uh, among Israel. It includes the foreign nations, those who were converts. Ruth is a great example of this. And it includes the fulfillment of this in the New Testament among both Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament. So the, who is comprised by the elect? Well, it's all of God's people, which, yes, includes Israel, and yes, includes the church. Uh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that not all of ethnic Israel were saved. Right. So no, they were chosen in a, from an ethnic sense in a particular period of time, but those who are chosen before the foundation of the world are those who God brings through the, the chain that we see in Romans. Yeah, Romans 9, 10, 11. Read Romans 9, 10, 11. Yeah, that's perfect. That's a great way. Yeah, I mean, like what Paul says, not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. He's making a distinction. Um, at DeWalt Jeff, how should a Christian respond to the seeming tension between election and praying for the lost? Pray for the lost. You should yep. obey the commands of Scripture to pray for the lost. Pray for the lost. Ca uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon said, wouldn't it be nice if there was an E on the back of the coattails of every elect person in London? But there isn't. So I'm going to pray for them all and preach to them all. That's great. That's, that's how you respond to the tension. You say there is no tension. And you also say, if God's not sovereign over salvation, why am I praying to him to save anybody? If God's not the acting agent in salvation, what can he do if I ask him to save if he can be thwarted by the will of man, then what does he act? What can he actually do? The Calvinist, the sovereignist, the one who believes in election, this is the proper foundation of our evangelism. I could talk about this forever. Lightning round, Kyle. I'm sorry. Um, Wesley, why do you think the beatific vision is so undersourced in recent church history? What are some good resources on the subject? Uh, gosh, I just said blanking on the guy's name. Michael Allen Grounded in Heaven is, a, is the book you got to read. And some of it is because every time we're doing theology, we only find ourselves in the middle when we're swinging between two sides. And we swung from kind of a Christian Platonism and spirituality to an over-realization on, on what material salvation is. And he does a great job of showing how both of those things are true. 
Can you very quickly give people a definition of beatitude? God's, God's beauty is the most lovely beauty that you could ever witness and the proper satisfaction of every human desire and the great longing of the Christian's life is to see him unveiled in that manner. And the question is, is people are, people are wondering, don't I get to experience that at death? And if that's true, why is resurrection my greatest hope? I would say, why is it so undersourced in recent church history? Distraction. Yep. Just, we no longer long for it. Oh, I, uh, I would say introspection and uh, man-centered teaching. Yeah, that's good. Um, guys, I think that's probably where we need to cut it for tonight. That was a lot. Two more, two more. Come on, two more. Um, on Google or even Wikipedia, it claims that Augustine uh, stoicism and other forms of philosophy to interpret the Bible. Is that true? And if so, is that okay? He doesn't primarily use stoicism. He primarily uses uh, Neoplatonism, which you might just be confusing terms. Uh, and those two things are similar. And of course it's okay. None of us get to escape the worlds and the philosophies that we live in. It's important to be aware of them and to know what we're bringing to the table when we come to the text. The same way I might be bringing enlightenment, modern or postmodern understandings of the world as I read the Bible, Augustine's no different. He actually even had a phrase for it. Augustine, when talking about the ideas of human, human civilization and their import into the Christian life, he used the phrase plundering the Egyptians, which is like, listen, this is gold, that all truth belongs to God, all goodness belongs to God, all beauty belongs to God. And so if Plato said something that's helpful for us getting towards truth, goodness, and beauty, I'm going to take it from Plato and bring it right in. Now, that comes with some drawbacks, and it came with some significant drawbacks in the life of the early church. But yes, he was bringing that in. A lot of our logic and language when it comes to Trinitarianism was forged in the crucible of the work of Plato and Aristotle. That's not a weird thing. We use logic and language for the purposes of communicating truth. Um, last question, the big one that we got like a ton of on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube. What will happen to knowing faith? What will happen to knowing faith? Dun, dun, dun. It's over. We're done. It's this over. Is, this is it. When the stream cuts out, knowing faith is gone. Forever. It will be like it never existed. Um, and all previous episodes will be deleted. The archives will be removed. People, when you ask somebody at the village, what happened to knowing faith? They'll be like, we don't even know what you're talking about. Um, when you guys say that question, when, what, hey, everybody out there, not, not JT and Todd, when you're like, hey, what's going to happen to knowing faith? I feel like you're asking, what's going to happen to your friendships? And the answer is, friends are friends forever. Forever. Lord is the Lord of them. And so this doesn't stop just because JT decides that mountains are better than the great plains of Texas. Kyle left first. Yeah, um, that's true. I was, I was the first shot across the bow. Uh, but listen, in, tr in truth, no, like JT, Jen, and I collaborate outside of knowing faith. Uh, we're friends. <laughs> we, we text each other about serious yeah. stuff and funny yeah, ridiculous stuff. ongoing text threads. So. I mean, we're just, so we're just friends. So like, we're going to keep doing this. Um, there is actually some really exciting stuff afoot. Like we actually think a lot of our brightest days of collaboration are in front of us, not behind us. And so I'm very excited about what we're going to be doing. I know that will involve digital content. It will involve at least a podcast. It may involve other digital content as well. We already collaborate together in another thing called Training the Church. You could go to trainingthechurch.com and see a little bit of that um, and uh, find out what's going on with trainingthechurch.com. But we, we, we dabble in each other's work. We edit each other's stuff. We punch up each other's 
uh, writing. So that's going to continue happening. And I can assure you, if you are interested in the three of us talking on air, that's not stopping. Maybe even more so now. Maybe more. It Maybe may more. It's easier when you're a lead pastor, right? I hear it. I hear you just kind of have coffee with people. And oh, yeah, it's, it's so simple. Calendar, <laughs> yeah. It's just a breeze. Listen, hey, we're glad that you jumped on. We went almost 90 minutes. Maybe nobody is left re- watching this. You're listening to a recording years in the future, and you're wondering what all this stuff was about. If you want to keep in touch with us in terms of what's going on for next week, you can follow JT on Twitter, Jen on Twitter, me on Twitter. You can go to Village Church Texas, follow them as well, and you can find the link for next week. I think we're doing this next Tuesday, 739, same time, same place. See you next time. Grace and peace.